0: Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the Spotlight shines on someone who embodies the phrase creative professional. Photographer, archivist, author, and business person Chris Duffy. Chris's father, Brian, who worked under his surname Duffy, was an incredibly influential photographer with a background in fashion and art who's been described as a maverick, an innovator, a risk-taker, and a boundary pusher. To music fans, Duffy might be best known for his seminal work with David Bowie, including what is often called the Mona Lisa of pop, the image on the cover of Bowie's Aladdin Sane though he also worked with David on sessions for Ziggy Stardust, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Scary Monsters, and Lodger. Chris was an assistant to his father on the Scary Monsters sessions and went on to open his own photography and commercial video studios. His work spans the post-punk, new wave, and new romantic eras, with more to come as he continues to shoot less commercial projects, free to follow wherever his eye leads. Since the middle of the first decade of this century, Chris has devoted an increasing amount of his energy to preserving his father's work and legacy, ensuring that an artist who increasingly withdrew from public life before passing away in 2010 continued to be recognized and have his work seen. This has resulted in gallery shows, a BBC documentary, books, and a key role in the David Bowie Is Traveling exhibition staged by the Victoria and Albert Museum. Our conversation interweaves Chris's story, Duffy's, the worlds of fashion and music photography, and is animated by Chris's insight and willingness to share. He made for a wonderful guest who's been witness to and participant in some amazing moments in modern culture. And now, Chris Duffy. Lawrence. (laughs) Chris, (laughs) is this really you? (laughs) yes (laughs) it is me it is me for sure thank you for enduring the twists the turns the ups and downs the side roads the winding paths and thanks for making time
1: well thank you for inviting me to your uh, wonderful podcast series it's been fascinating and you're doing an amazing an amazing job there yeah what a
0: selection of people fantastic yeah i appreciate that well I've put some work in to try to find some paths to go down with you that might be a little bit different, I hope, than sort of some of the same questions you always get asked. Of course, there's some things that I, I suppose are unavoidable because they're of interest and in, in, in cultural importance. But as I learned more about you and, and read more about you, there were a lot of questions that came up for me that weren't taken as given. So I thought maybe we could explore some of those things. Oh, Sure. One of the first things that 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 came up for me is what does it mean to oversee an archive like Duffy's like what's the mission what's the actual work and sort of what's the line between art and commerce for you Well art and commerce has always been
1: an issue in in any creative medium from when I started as a photographer that was always the problem of trying to do what you felt was inside you but then facilitating a client what a client wanted you to to do but with the archive initially my thoughts were because I, I i'd been asking duffy to put his work together for so many years and his reply was always well it's all yours when i fall off the perch old love it's it's down to you and um he contracted a lung disease and we knew that he only had a a certain amount of of time with us and it was at that point that I, I said to him, look we really need to do something and so he agreed and I, I started working with him going through all his material but the the archive as a kind of entity in my life has been part of a series of different things stages that I've been through and I always had this view in life that I had a vision of where I wanted to get and I Put a, a mental elastic band to a stake in the in the ground that I drew myself to, and with every thought, word, and deed, I got closer to that point. And it's it's manifestation of of what's what's in your head or where you want to get to. And of course, when you get to that point, it's never really what you thought it was going to be, and you have to kind of set another mental elastic band. So I've always been drawn along this path in life. And I never envisaged that I would be putting an archive together. So it was, it was a completely new concept. And I had to learn from the ground up. But being incredibly fortunate to have such amazing work eased the process in many ways, because it opened doors, so many people were interested in it. And I think particularly with the 60s, which is really what I call the embryo of of modern pop culture. I mean, if you think music, for example, teenagers didn't really come about until the late 50s, and then you had your Eddie Cochran's, your, your Bill Haley's, and rock and roll started, and then that evolved into an Elvis, and then the 60s and the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan and Hendrix. Hendrix was a bit later, I guess. but, but um, So people continually hark back to the 60s as this kind of foundation, and, and everything seems to evolve from it. So having an archive of, and of course, my father's work went from the late 50s, bulk in the 60s, and then he went into the 70s. But it actually really changed the whole kind of view and look. Technology changed, fashion changed. But the 60s work is always of interest. People are continually looking back on it. And um, I think possibly that's the way it goes with, you know, in the 80s and another 30 or 40 years, people will look back at the way they look at the 60s now. So like everything, I think it takes time. It's like laying wine down for several years for it to come to fruition. But going back to your, your, your question about the archives... I envisaged it really that it would I would get a couple of exhibitions out of it. We'd do a monograph book, maybe a couple of books because Duffy was such a, a varied photographer from yeah. his portraits to his fashion to advertising. He'd mastered all of those different genres, and uh, so I thought we'd have a, a couple of exhibitions and do a couple of books, and I would move back to what I was doing at the time which was my own film production company but as interest grew and we got more and more galleries I got overtaken and I just got absorbed with this and got on a roll and I think I've been doing this now 12 years and it's it's quite incredible the journey that it's taken me on and all the people I've met on a worldwide basis because we have over uh, I think 30 galleries worldwide and I've I've got some great friendships with people from different territories and countries. And it's just been an amazing journey. So, and to, to share
0: that excitement and interest in Duffy's work, it's, it's just so fulfilling. It's been, yeah, a terrific journey. Did working on the archive or does your ongoing work on the archive change your thinking or even your relationship and understanding of who Duffy was as a person or I don't want to play armchair psychologist, but it seems very profound to be a family member, a, a son, a collaborator, and then also the steward. It seems like there's a lot in there.
1: Well, I'm particularly lucky. There's lots of archives that get handed down to a stepmother's brother's uncle's dog, you know, and they, they don't have a connection. I worked for Duffy as an assistant through the 70s, traveled with him extensively, and then became a photographer myself, and then it came full circle with the archive, because when we started looking at the work, Duffy used to come into the studio every day, my studio, and we went through a kind of top-level down. We knew we had a, an exhibition, so we had to start looking at work, and we'd go through contact sheets, and we'd grade it, from five-star down. So, for example, we'd, we'd go through the contacts and Michael Kane, well, of course, that's a five-star. Sandy Davis Jr., that's a five-star. And then, oh, well, that's a three-star, that's a two-star. And then we'd go back and review, drill down into those sessions. So we'd look at the Michael Kane contact sheets, for example. I'd say, that's that's a great picture. We should use that for the print, for the limited edition that we're going to do for the exhibition. And say, yeah. It's a good picture, but it's not a great picture. And so we started looking at work, and I realized that through that process, and of course, having assisted him, I knew his mindset and the way that he thought about things, but it really galvanized my understanding of the way that he viewed things mm. out of a, a contact sheet of 12 images or 36 images and I'm at a point where I can look at now a contact sheet. And I know the one that he would pick. I'm just in his head. And the biggest compliment that he ever gave me was that he said, there's very few people I know that can read a photograph. It appears very easy, but actually it's quite complex. And he said, you're one of them. So that was, that was a a great compliment. I feel completely connected to, to his work and his, his view. Interestingly enough, having assisted him for many years standing next to him as an assistant and looking at what he was photographing. And I can see what he's photographing and everyone else can. But when the pictures came out, it always kind of looks slightly different. It's like, well, I didn't see that. How did he, how did he get that look? How You know, it is so interesting the way each photographer has a viewpoint and a vision. Duffy was an L photographer for 20 years. He started working for them in the early sixties. And when we're putting the archive together, I contacted Fred L and got hold of a fantastic lady called Edith Mandron, who said, yes, yes, come over, come over, we've got all the pictures here. And I thought French, being the French, it would be really a kind of complex process. And she welcomed me in and she said, look, we have all these pictures, but we don't have time to go through them. You're quite welcome to look through all these issues of L and find Duffy's work mark the pages and then come back in a couple of months when we, we've sorted the megs out. I remember L was bi-monthly and some of the issues were extraordinary because they were like 200 pages long. They were real, they weren't just, it wasn't just a fashion magazine, it was a cultural magazine. There'd be articles on artists like Paul Klee or Swedish pottery in the 30s and, and then in amongst all these amazing fashion photographs. And so I had to go through all these issues and the legend to find the pictures changed so as you know in a fashion magazine sometimes the pictures will be down the side of the the pages photo by Duffy sometimes they'd be only at the beginning of the article and in Fred Schell case sometimes they were just at the beginning of the index so I had to go through pages and pages and pages of fashion pictures to find Duffy's work and in the end I'd look at a picture and i go, that's a Duffy. Even though it didn't say Duffy, I'd go, I'm sure that's a Duffy. And then I'd find the credit, and lo and behold, it was. And if you asked me how I knew, I couldn't describe it in words. It's just a look, and it's what separates great photographers. Uh, Duffy's always been considered a photographer's photographer, and he said to me, he said, if you want to know who the best jazz trumpeter in the world is, ask jazz trumpeters. And so on our Instagram and social media, we've got a huge amount of, of, of photographers. And I've had so many photographers say to me, you know, your dad started me, influenced me to take up photography. And he just had a unique look. In that period in the 60s, of course, and life is always about timing. And so we'd come out of the stark 50s where photographers were shooting on plate cameras and very formal. Fashion was very posed and... Of course, technology had a lot to do with that. With now 35mm cameras coming out, and Duffy Bailey and Donovan really injected life into the fashion models got them jumping, laughing, running—and that that changed the look. But it is really about timing. He was in the right place and 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 the right time. And photographers had tremendous power at that at that point. People clients engaged a photographer because whether it was Giebel Dan or Helmut Newton, because you could tell, or Sarah Moon, you could could tell their pictures. That's all changed now, I think. I I mean, I, I find it very difficult to tell one photographer from another, really. I think everything has become so homogenized. And of course, technology's changed that because now the digital medium has
0: allowed this layering. I don't actually know what I'm looking at anymore. Yeah, I was introduced to that concept uh, from an architectural photographer who who told me about how he shoots a space and then makes a composite image and so every part of the picture has the best possible light and it gives this sort of surreal hypernatural unnatural look that has become kind of a signature in architectural photography or even I even see it now in like real estate listings because the technology's gotten so accessible and your, where you were starting to go was opening the other path I wanted to ask you about, which was what, what were Duffy Bailey and Donovan's sort of innovations and you started to answer that. But I also wonder like, where does a photographer's look live? You know, when I talk to musicians, I say, where does your sound or your tone come from? And sometimes they say my particular equipment rig or some guitarists say it's all in my hands. It doesn't matter what guitar I pick up. And I wonder is part of what you're saying that you, the look is lost because each photographer doesn't have their own processing anymore? They're not in the chemical? Like, I don't want to romanticize it, but I'm curious as to what makes a Duffy. <laughs> well,
1: I, well I, I think today there's everyone's a photographer, so you're fighting against the numbers there. there's Everyone is a photographer. I think in the 50s, I know when Duffy wanted to become a photographer, his parents would have said to him, what? you want to become what? Are you crazy? Get a proper job. But I think intrinsically it comes through any creative process comes from within, and it's the way that you see things. And that is whether you're a musician, you're a sculptor, you're a painter, you're a photographer, and that's based on yeah your personal view of of what's influenced you. I mean, Duffy didn't start out as a photographer. He wanted to be a painter, and he went to St Martin's Art School and. Realized at a very early stage the course that, that he'd been enrolled in because he'd got a scholarship that he'd been seen as a. Uh, he'd actually been in, he'd been a, I say, a, a troubled child. He'd, during the war, his father had gone off to fight against the Nazis and he was evacuated for a short period and then brought back. There was four of them. He had two brothers and a sister. And so, uh, London at that time being bombed on a regular basis. The kids his age, a young teenager, formed gangs. They'd roam the streets. I mean, they'd go in bond out houses and steal things. It was a very sort of feral existence, I suppose. And so he was. He'd got into a lot of trouble. Learned to look out for himself. And uh, they put him in a school for troubled kids. But his art teacher recognised that he he had a, a real talent and skill for for drawing. So. He managed to get into Saint Martin's Art School, and as I say, initially wanted to be a painter. But he saw people like painters like Frank Arbach were there, and realised very quickly he was he it, he personally thought he wasn't up to that level. So he jumped over to dress design, and his artistic ability in illustration he he was he was excellent. Actually, in the archive we've got many of his original drawings from St. Martin's, which are just absolutely wonderful. So he went on that tangent of being, at that point, wanting to be a a dress designer. But then, when delivering some illustrations to Harper's Bazaar, saw a bunch of contact sheets on the art director's table and picked them up and went, what are these? And I think the art director was called Jill Varnish. She said, oh, they're, they're contact sheets. And Duffy looked at them and said, well... They all look the same. He said, Look carefully, they're all different. And he realized at that point that photography was going to be a lot easier than drawing, than illustrating. So <laughs> he went down that path. So again, this this thing of like moving through different points in your life and things evolve. His look, I think, came from very much uh, being having a passion for art and artists, and of course, you look at any painting. It's about light, he wants you to understand how do you how do you get that light how so he was very technical and it evolved out of many different strands, really. I guess other photographers have have got different ways that they arrive at it, but interestingly enough, I think if you look at the three of them, Norman Parkinson uh, named them the Black Trinity, what was so interesting that they were great friends and that they were also different because. Terry was like the comedian. Duffy was the intellectual and Bailey was kind of the terror way. When I look at Duffy's pictures and when I look at the contact sheets, it's so interesting because I can see as an intellectual, he was so well read. The camera was almost like just an instrument. He had assistants do things like set the F stops. But he was completely engaged and absorbed with the setter. So, I mean, if I have a camera now and I go to take a picture of you, you know what you look like. But when I put a camera on you, it's always a bit intimidating. Duffy managed to kind of completely take that element of being photographed out of the equation and engage people intellectually so they were not aware that they were being photographed. And when you look at the the contact sheets, you can see people making facial expressions, hand expressions, because they're engaged in conversation with him. And that was his his technique of, of completely putting people at ease with not even thinking about being photographed, but engaging with them. And his process was always very much about what makes you think what you think. Why do you think that? So he was always drilling down into people's background, where they came from, and what made them think what, what they thought. And he was very adept because he was so well-read at being able to argue the opposite position. And so he would actually, in many instances, uh, I say start an argument because he did love an argument, goad people into a position where it would start a dialogue and a dialectic. But then, of course, you know, Bailey had a different kind of approach, I think. Bailey's thing would be, uh, if he was taking a picture of you, he'd lean over and he'd rub your shoulder and go, you got dandruffed. And the sitter would go back, and he, he always put people on the back foot and if you look at these pictures they, that's his kind of technique as i say terry was the joker every photographer's got a different
0: a different process what were they to you were they were they was the, were these your dad's pals were they were they like misfit uncles yeah they were definitely misfit uncles they were around the house all the time and their
1: dialogue with photography was unending about lenses and technique and new (laughs) photographers and pushing the boundaries so to me they were just always yeah they were uncle david and uncle terry
0: we'll be back with more of my discussion with chris duffy after this break and now back to my discussion with chris duffy
1: very lucky to be in that
0: environment. I didn't realize at the time how unique that was. Did that make a life in photography inevitable for you? Because I know you took other courses and had other paths, but how did you manage to break away from it? And did you always intend to come back? Well, I was given a, a Kodak Brownie at a young age, and I photographed
1: my sisters and my brother and just really just as a kind of toy, really. I didn't have any in-depth interest in it, that it was only when I had got my first job, my, my aunt, Elaine, bless her, got me, she was working at a, an agency, and she got me a job as a trainee processor in a laboratory, and I got £13 a week. It was in Warren Street in London. And the job was really very simple. Photographers would bring film, into the foyer and write down oh, you know, 10 rolls for Michael Barrington Moore, put them through. They need them by 12 o'clock. And I would go in the dark room, put them on the hangers. And this machine, which was automated, would just take the film through the process. Uh, and finally, the last part of the process was into a drying cabinet. They come out the drawing cabinet. I would take them out and i cut them up and match them up with the chip from the front when they came in and take them out the front. That was it. But what started to interest me, because the processing side of it, you can learn like in a couple of days or a week or a month, you know, that it becomes very tedious and repetitive. But what interested me was what I was looking at as I was cutting these transparencies up. The images, I was like started to become really interested in it. And after six months, I called my dad up and I said, can I have a job as an assistant? He said, no, I've got two assistants. I pestered him, I think for another six months. I was at the lab for a year and he finally said, look, I got two assistants, but if you want to come as an assistant, you can make coffee and sweep the floor. And, and that's all I can offer you. So that's how I got in. And then he was shooting a big advertising job and he, he did go through assistants. He, he fired, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he fired the assistant who was the color printer. I said, well, I've worked in the lab. I, I've done a bit of color printing and I got put into the darkroom. And from that point, I just took off. I ended up becoming the first assistant studio manager and then traveled with him. So my fascination was, as I say, really had come from from the processing lab. It hadn't
0: come from being at home and being around him and that environment. You know, you you talked about it earlier in the conversation and I feel like I I don't know what's the mythology or what's the reality, but did he have an ambivalent feeling towards his archive or his work? Like, you know, I, I read the story of how he destroyed a bunch of photos. I'm not entirely sure what that's about, but it's interesting. I hear competing impulses, like to still have drawings from art school implies somebody knowing they're either destined for greatness or fond of their own work, or they just knew to keep it compared to somebody who didn't want to look back and do the work of the archiving themselves. I'm curious, like, what's that about?
1: I hadn't thought about it. That's quite an interesting question, that he had kept such early work and then destroyed later work. The reason that he destroyed or tried to destroy most of his archive was that he got to a point, and, you know, going back to this question of the power of the photographers in the 60s. By the 70s, the power structure had changed. Antonioni's blow-up had come out, and everyone wanted to be a photographer because it was fast cars, girls, money. And the industry started getting saturated with more and more photographers. And so the competition was higher. The economics had changed. The money had come down. And Duffy was running a studio with a secretary, two assistants, Of course, at that time, a photographer had to front the whole shoot. So any advertising shoot that he was doing or even editorial, you'd have to pay for the film, the set building, the the whole nine yards and then wait several months to get paid. So he was on this kind of treadmill of running this, this factory. In the end, I think he just got completely burnt out on trying to keep the whole thing going when... He didn't really, particularly in the advertising business, I know he always felt he was prostituting himself and felt that most of the people that he was working with were really not that talented. I think that irked him in himself, and one day he just flipped. He came into the studio, and an assistant said to him, we've run out of toilet paper. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And he fired everyone. They had a job on that day. He fired everyone, said, that's it. It's the end of the line. No more. Sent everyone home and started to burn his legs in the backyard. Luckily for us, and I don't know, it's probably something you've never tried, burning a, a, a roll of film, but. Being plastic, plastic, it it creates black, acrid smoke. And the legs that he'd thrown on his bonfire was creating bellows of toxic smoke that waffled down the gardens. And somebody complained, and a guy from the council came round and looked over the fence and said, put that out, you can't do that. So it stopped him burning everything, thankfully. It really was the the straw that broke the camel's back. And Duffy always said... And I guess this sort of dovetails into his relationship with with David Bowie as well, this idea that he always said, you have to burn your bridges to move forward. And that was something that was very connected with David, that David did exactly the same. If you think about Aladdin Sane and Ziggy, one final gig, he he gave it the chop. And Duffy was very much of that thinking. So they had a kind of connection on that level about your art and what you do and where where you're going.
0: Yeah, it's very hard to ignore that parallel. For at least a significant portion of David's career it was about moving forward, not looking back. In the later work he did start to quote himself and become more self-referential, but even that was it was interesting. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't rehashing. It was it was more of a pop art style.
1: Yeah, interesting enough in the last video in Black Star you see how David references back to Duffy's work in in Lodger with all the tiles. He just kind of, I don't know whether that was a nod to Duffy because they did have such a connection. When they started talking, it was like you couldn't interject. They were on like just another level really, you know? Yeah. And they did enjoy each other's company, but they were both obsessed with art really and ideas. And they worked, their connection worked perfectly because the way David harnessed other people's visions to his own end dovetailed. David would come up with an idea, knowing that if he gave it to Duffy, Duffy would come out with something brilliant. So they were always bouncing off each other.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a, a element that often gets missed in David's work was how much of it was just about him providing context and forum for his collaborators to execute his vision or to to do their piece. I think it's a large part of why from album to album or era to era, his music is so different because it's not, he's just providing the the context and the, and the, the ability for everybody to come together, but it's different combinations of people. And yeah, it's, it's a fascinating way to work when you were out sort of pursuing your film and production business and video business and in LA and decided to come back to the UK, come back to England I've seen a reference to that you were sort of drawn by the the Cool Britannia movement. I wonder as an American, if you could, or for a lot of American listeners, what was the importance and the the resonance of that for you? So yes, in 1990,
1: when the recession had hit the UK here, and it was a really depressing time. So many companies were were folding and going under. Interest rates were up at 16%. film production companies and model agencies and restaurants and what have you were all collapsing. And I had the opportunity to move to the US. My wife at the time was American. And so we moved to Los Angeles and I managed to get an agent there. I was a director of photography, lighting cameraman, as you say, here in the UK. And I I got a lot of work shooting pop promos and TV commercials and that was great. I really enjoyed that. There is one shoot that sticks out in my mind. It was a a music video for Ozzy Osbourne, and it was being shot at the same time in London with Kim Bassinger on green screen, and we were going to shoot Ozzy on green screen, and the director was going to map the two pieces together. The... Day before, we'd had a a pre-light at a studio down in Studio City. And the next day of the shoot, we all turned up, 7, 8 o'clock. And the producer said, well, everyone have breakfast and take it. Don't rush because Ozzy's on his way down from Vegas. He'd done a gig there the night before. So we got to about 11.30 and the producer came back and he said, well, I'm really sorry, guys, but... Ozzy's been held up, so why don't we just all take an early lunch? He's going to be here very soon. So we had lunch about 12.30, and that went on to about 2 o'clock. And the producer came back again, and he said, Ozzy's on his way, he's on his way, no problem, no problem. But so let's have a a sandwich and tea break. So we had a sandwich and tea break, and it got to 5 o'clock. And the producer came back and he said, I'm really sorry, Ozzy's not going to make it. It's a wrap. Well, we all got paid and it must have cost the production company a fortune. But sadly, I never got to do the shoot with Ozzy. But, you know, I would have paid good money to have been at that after gig party in Vegas. That must have been some real humdinger. So I worked with a, a lot of interesting people and the system was very different in L.A., Just the whole environment, of course, you know, the scale and the weather made a big difference. So I I really enjoyed that. But by 1996, the recession had ended in the UK, and I really felt that I needed to get back and see what was going on there. And remember, we'd had Margaret Thatcher in power for 18 years, and this was a big change with the Tony Blair government getting in. And I got back, and there was just this whole new like explosion of energy that was going on that was really exciting and of course the internet had, had, had started there was new opportunities i took up photography again uh for a short period i opened a multimedia company because no one knew at that point what new media was people were talking about new media companies but then people would say what's new media you
0: know there was a minute there where it was CD ROMs. <laughs> well, yeah,
1: and then yeah, and then interactive DVDs. Yeah. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I brought to bear all my kind of experience from film editing, cameraman, photography. I mean, I got into computers in eighty six. I've always kept up on it. So all that technology all kind of blended into all the possibilities that I could see when I came back to London in, in 96. And I couldn't see myself having those opportunities in LA because the other thing is, you know, yourself, you grow up in an environment and you don't make better friends. I had a, I still had a network in London of people I, I'd had friends since I was 17, 18, 19, you know, who'd moved up the chain and, and reconnecting with them. I didn't have that history in LA. I made new contacts, but home is home.
0: I just got drawn
1: back to London and, and, and the energy that was
0: here. So I stayed. It's hard for people who did not grow up in a Thatcher or even a pre-Blair, London in particular, to understand how different it is over the last 25 years, whether it's food, nightlife, the sort of music scene of the of the late 90s and the club scene and the drum and bass music. Like it was just, it London just... Blossomed in an incredible way, became very, very three D and Technicolor. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it, but, it, but like
1: all things, it changes every well, just constantly is an evolution. You know, London is not the London I knew that I grew up in the sixties and the seventies, and then the whole explosion where I came to fruition as a, a photographer in my own right in the eighties with the New Romantics movement, and just before that with punk as well. You know that whole evolution there now it's a completely different place but then new york's different everywhere's different 10 years makes a massive new generation comes in and everything changes and it's funny because i remember in the 80s thinking about the zeitgeist and everything that was happening I, i recognized as we all do that it won't be like this in 10 years time but i was projecting and thinking what will it be like in the 90s what will it be in the 2000s. It's like, you just couldn't imagine how it would evolve. When you get there and you look back, it all makes sense. But looking forward.
0: Flying cars and (laughs) jetpacks.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even, you know, I think even now in the last, this 31st of May was my dad's anniversary of passing, it's 12 years. Mm. And I I miss him so because the conversations, you know, something would happen and you'd. I was always like, I couldn't wait to ask him what he thought of something because I knew he'd never give me the answer that I thought. It would always be tangential. It would always be anarchic or different. And he'd put a new spin on it and you'd go, oh, that's interesting. I haven't thought of that. But I was thinking like in the last 12 years, how much how much, so much has changed. If you think about it, apps, for example, apps are, what, 10, 11 years old? I mean, if I'd have sent you 10 years ago I'm building an app, you'd go, what are you talking about? And yet- everything now we've got iPhones with all this technology that we've assimilated and we've grown with i mean i've got 10 nieces and nephews and i'm waiting for the moment where the penny drops and one of them will say to me uncle chris let's get this right you were born in a period where there was no internet and no mobile mobile phones how did you exist right i mean my nieces and nephews now
0: it's just Half of the course. I used to think that about the fax machine. I can remember first coming into the business world and thinking, how did people plan tours and you know sign contracts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if it's safe for me to assume or to parrot back to you that the accomplishments you've made both in your career and with the archive are these series of waypoints that you that you cast out and then you chart a course. Do you have the next waypoint? Or is that something that sits in you personally? And I guess more broadly, sort of what's next for the archive? What do, what, what's, what do you do now?
1: Yes, I mean, the archive seems to have endless possibilities and options. I, I, as I say, when I first started, I had a blueprint that we do two or three exhibitions. And I wanted to do the monograph book, a fashion book, a portrait book, Duffy's personal work, reportage book. Maybe a few kind of odd books, maybe images from the Sunday Times or certain projects that Duffy shot. There's little things like he went to Hong Kong in '69. There's a book I, I'm, I'm putting together called HK69, um, which is fascinating because all the streets are all British, the names of the streets, and and so I don't think they're particularly mind-bending photographs, for, for, but as from a historical. Point of view, they're quite interesting. Contextually, there, there was all those kind of book projects that I wanted to do, and I just got swept away in 2013 with the David Bowie is DNA exhibit, and that went round the world. We got involved with the Bowie exhibit, and so I only got the monograph out. I've still got all these other books that I still uh, are on my agenda to do. So there's lots of work that needs to be fulfilled. And then I think at that point, what my job will be done because it was always really a matter of, at the time when Duffy wasn't interested in pushing and promoting his work, other photographers, you know, Bailey's always been there pushing his work. Donovan's been, uh, his archives have been pushing his work. And I felt that Duffy really needed to be put out. People who knew who he was in the 60s and 70s knew how great he was, but he was falling off, the age, a younger generation didn't know. So I felt it was incumbent on me to get that message out, show his work to everyone. And I think once I've got that done, I will probably go back to my own work. And the beauty of that is that actually when I was working, and I felt very much like Duffy in as much as that although I had a passion and obsession for photography, I I always felt uncomfortable working for clients because you never know whether someone's going to like what you're doing because you're being paid to do it. When you do your own work, you only have yourself to please. And so when I first started working for Duffy, one of the things that we did on a regular basis, Duffy was always taking pictures. He had a little half frame camera. He was always taking snaps and on a evening he'd give me a couple of rolls of film and he'd say process those let's see what we got nothing commercial just purely snaps reportage work and I again got completely absorbed into this level of the aesthetics and it, uh, it wasn't for a client it wasn't commercial and that was my passion with photography now that's become full circle because I don't have to make my living by taking photographs for clients I can do what I want And if somebody likes it, that's great. If they don't, that's great as well. I only have to please myself. So it will get to a point when I've achieved what I've set out to do with the archive, I'll get back to doing what I want, really, back to to my photographs. Well, I'll
0: look forward to that.
1: Thank you. Well, I mean, the other, the other exciting project that will happen before I'll I'll do that is we still have a connection with the, the, the Bowie work that Duffy did. Obviously five great sessions and we've been working on it for, well, actually it's seven years now, but we had two years of the pandemic where we had a black hole. We are probably, I would think later this year or early next year going to launch a five sessions. Duffy Museum exhibit, which is gonna tour the world. That's the next big project for the archive. That's exciting. That'll be fun. Yeah, we'll we'll keep you posted on that one. Yeah. I mean, the collection has got original material, all the Aladdin Sane printaples and notes and lots of memorabilia, video interviews that I've done with a lot of David's collaborators from Mike Garson, Carlos Alomar, Susie Rodson, Woody Woodman, so you know, and this is all unseen material. So this is going to be a very interesting project.
0: Oh, that's incredible. I can't wait. Uh, yeah. Will you send the camera out? Which one? The, the original From the Aladdin there? Sane sessions. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: When we did the Bowie 75 in London, Sandy, who works with me, who's, who's brilliant, said to me, why don't you take because they asked me to give a a, a talk there about the work. Why don't you take the original Hasselblad camera? And I took the the Hasselblad EL with the 120 lens on, and I put it it around the corner, and I stood it in front of an Aladdin Sane print and lined it up so when you looked in the viewfinder, you saw what Duffy saw. (laughs) And at the end of the talk, I said, and we've got something special to you, I brought the original camera, and there was a palpable gasp. You could hear people go, huh? and uh, it was a real winner. People just couldn't believe. It. They looked through the camera, and it's like that is what Duffy saw on the actual camera.
0: You it's know, magical. That's magical yeah. for a fan. For that yeah, is, oh, yeah, really yeah, cool. yeah. Thank you so much, Chris Duffy. Sandy Goodman, and the Duffy Archive. Thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and sponsored by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Perrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Weyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.